First Peter. First Peter chapter five. We'll be looking at verses six through eleven. And if you are able, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. First Peter chapter five, reading verses six through eleven. This is God's holy word. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this evening asking for eyes to see and for ears to hear. May your Holy Spirit bless this time as we look to your word. We want to see our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So may you humble the hearts of us all, that we may place our whole lives into your hands. May you encourage those of us who are weary, that they may partake of your hope and peace. May our affections for Christ be stirred all the more deeply so that we may see him as more to be desired than the riches that this present age has to offer. It's in your son's name, Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. In 1898, an ambitious project was taking shape in East Africa. A railroad was being constructed connecting Kenya to Uganda, and hundreds of workers were hired to see its completion. But this project took a turn for the worse when a bridge had to be built over the, uh, the, the Savo River. Two cunning male lions approached around this time, and they began to attack the workers. These lions were intelligent, overcoming traps and locks that were set to keep them at bay. They would uh, also uh, exercise just a brutality, terrorizing workers one by one, each and every night, picking off unsuspecting men one by one. And a skilled hunter was eventually dispatched, and he would bring to an end their reign of terror, but only after somewhere between 50 to 100 workers were killed. These two lions came to be known as the man-eaters of Savo. And you can see their preserved forms, taxidermied, at the Field Museum in Chicago, Illinois. Now today's passage presents us with a powerful image, like the man-eaters of Savo, of a lion. What do we do when suffering comes knocking on our doors? Or when a lion enters our tent? The book of 1 Peter helps answer this very question. Peter is writing to uh, people acquainted with suffering. 
His audience is likely made up of Jewish converts to Christianity who were moved out of Rome by the Emperor Claudius. Some scholars believe that they were moved because of their faith. But wherever they came from or wherever they landed, regardless of these situations, we do know something about his audience. These people are sojourners. They are people without a home. And in that respect, we can look a lot like these Christians in the first century. We are people without an earthly home. And we are also a people that are under attack by an enemy. An outline has been provided in your bulletin, should you find that helpful. We'll begin looking at the beginning of our passage, verses 6 and 7, our disposition. What does Peter say about our disposition when we face suffering? It's worth mentioning that Peter spent the first few verses of chapter 5 addressing the elders of the church. He does so as one who has seen Christ suffering and will partake of his coming glory. He calls the elders of the church to leadership through humility. But lest we think humility is only required of those in spiritual authority, he addresses the rest. He follows up in verse 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In light of what Scripture says concerning humbleness, Peter tells us in verse 6, that our disposition ought to be one of humility. Be humbled, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. This may not be what we come to expect especially in Western culture. Humility has become a vice, and pride has become a virtue. That's not to say that we can't be proud of honest work or of certain achievements in our lives. But what ought to be our disposition as believers? If we were to choose between pride or humility, what should we be known by, especially in moments of suffering? I think our answer is humility. We are those who are humbled by the mighty hand of God. And this brings to mind God saving Israel from the oppressive grasp of Egypt. This phrase, mighty hand of God, is repeated several times in the Exodus story. And for Peter's readers, for us this evening, this takes on a richer meaning. As those who have been delivered from the Egypt of sin and death, through a new exodus, purchased by Christ's own blood, be humble. This is not a suggestion for Peter's readers or for us. It's a command rooted in the gospel. Are you feeling ostracized? Do you feel looked down upon, says Peter? Don't puff yourself up, but be humble in heart. The gospel compels us to be humble. And at times, we are actually made to be humble on account of the gospel. The Christian sojourner in the first century could be subject to many difficulties, social, economic, and the like. But the biggest difficulty, and the one that impacts all the rest, was who they would worship. When they reject the local gods, when they refused to pledge allegiance to Caesar in order to honor Christ, there they would find humiliation. 
And as soon as their neighbors found out that they were Christians, hostility, betrayal, perhaps even persecution would take place. And what might, be Christians, what might Christians be tempted to when this sort of situation arises? How about today? Have you been mistreated in the workplace because of your faith in Christ? Perhaps you've been labeled as hateful for doing nothing more than affirming what Scripture has taught, what Christians have believed for thousands of years. In those instances, we can be tempted to make this personal, to make this about ourselves, to be proud. This mistreatment is an offense to me, and I must be vindicated here and now. I deserve to be treated better, to be placed in a position of honor or validation. One commentator writes, in such situations of suffering, of trial, Christians are tempted to react in pride, perhaps even to draw the sword as Peter did in the garden. The Mandalorians from the Star Wars universe have the mantra, this is the way, but retaliation is not the way of Christ. Earlier in his letter, Peter tells us, do not repay evil for evil, but on the contrary, bless. Peter tells us, it is better to suffer than to sin. We are to humble ourselves, not by taking matters into our own hands, but by casting it into the hands of another. Our humble disposition ought to remind us that we were delivered by God's own mighty hand. So why should we hold on to these concerns? Why should we let them burden us? Let's transfer our anxiety, transfer our burdens, placing them into the hands of God. By casting off our worries, we say that it now belongs in the hands of someone who can actually do something about our unjust suffering. And we find an example of this in King David, the psalmist. He presents us this disposition in Psalm 37, verses 5 and 6. He sings, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. We should give our anxiety to the Lord. Why? Our passage tells us, verse 7, because he cares for you. Do you need this reminder? Have you been going through a dark season? God has not abandoned you in your suffering. He knows about it. He cares about it. Our God cares for you. Give him your worries. Give him your concerns. He will make things right. But letting go of our anxiety and concerns is only one part of this. What else does Peter call us to do? He calls us to be on guard. Trials and suffering on account of our faith are hard enough. Perhaps you have lost friends over the years because of your faith. Relationships with loved ones just aren't the same. And there is a bit of strain because they just don't understand what all the Jesus talk is about. There may be some among us who have even lost income, jobs, because of their faith in Christ. Acknowledging difficulties similar to these, Peter 
calls his readers, he calls us to be sober. Humility enables us to be free from forms of spiritual and mental intoxication. And and what does inebriation do? It it constrains us. It, It limits our vision. Not just our ability to see, but the ability to foresee what lies ahead. It inhibits our ability to act in a wise manner. And deep anger, resentment, pride can do the same thing. There may be an example that comes to mind for you, but our intense anger or resentment can cloud our judgment, can hinder our ability to foresee what's ahead of us or even what's beside us. So in the face of suffering, Peter tells us to be sober and alert, to be in constant readiness. And what are we supposed to be in constant readiness for? A lion entering your tent. Peter presents this lion as our adversary. We are to watch out not just for an adversary or the adversary, but for your adversary. The Greek word used here has a legal background. It refers to someone who brings a charge forth in a lawsuit. And we have seen this accuser before, haven't we? In the heavenly courtroom before the presence of the Lord. And what was this accuser doing? Satan was seeking to tear apart Job's reputation as a faithful man. The devil, our adversary, is on the hunt and he's looking for evidence to present. And as C.S. Lewis wrote, if there is an error in believing that uh, too much about the devil and his evil minions, well, there is an opposite error and rejecting his existence. The devil is real. He is truly set against us. He is not content to just let our suffering do all the work. He wants to ensure the end of the people of God. This is why humility, soberness, and alertness is so important. We must watch out for this ancient foe. Others in the world may oppress us. They may humiliate us for our faith. But it's ultimately the devil that wants to destroy us. Peter calls the devil a roaring lion. And this is a curious choice. After all, we know Jesus as a lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah prophesied in the book of Genesis. But in Psalm 22, lion imagery is used. And it's not used to describe the ruler of Israel but an enemy of Israel. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. In the first century, lions brought to mind images of gladiator battles and of public executions. And so when we hear this very imagery, what are we uh, meant to think about but, but a brutal, a ruthless and dangerous opponent set against the people of God? As we undergo trials of various kinds, we have an enemy who wants to destroy us. And so to be self-centered, to make things about us, it puts us at risk of attack. It makes us spiritually vulnerable to his lies. We must be in constant readiness for this lion. 
Now, boys and girls, if you have uh, seen a National Geographic program on lions, you may know their hunting techniques. In a group, they will crowd around an animal and make it impossible for them to escape. But if it's a single lion, what would he or she do? The lion will crouch. The lion will hide behind tall grass. And the lion will scope out its potential meal. A young animal, an old animal, or a distracted animal. If the animal is not alert, the lion will pounce and have a successful hunt. So we must be alert and we must be able to resist him. And how could this be done? But in humility, recognizing that we cannot fight off the devil on our own. We must put on the armor of God. And so when he approaches us with false teaching, we must remain in the faith that was delivered to the saints. As he presents us with lies, we must bring to mind that good word about who God is, the one who cares about us in our moments of suffering. And when he uses individuals and in governments and institutions to persecute us, well, we must count it as joy to suffer for the cause of Christ. This is Christian resistance. We do not pursue uh, suffering at every turn, but when it comes to our door, when the lion comes to our tent, we endure and resist in humility to the glory of Christ. And we resist the devil knowing that we are not alone. Peter tells us in the end of verse 9 that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And if it was true in the first century, well, it remains true for us to this day. Christians around the world facing humiliation for the cause of the gospel, many of them suffering to the point of death. You think of our brothers and sisters, past and present, from the OPC who have served in Eritrea. They have suffered deeply and greatly for the cause of Christ. And there are countless more stories that we've never even heard of brothers and sisters that have endured suffering for the name. The church is made up of suffering people. No matter where you live and when you live, suffering and trials are our way of life. But it's not the end of our story. Let's look at verse 10 together. Verse 10 reads, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is a fine translation. But as we think about the reward for our suffering, it's important to emphasize what Peter emphasized. And in the original, the verse 10 begins with, but God. Now, some of us might be familiar with these sort of statements in the Bible. Oftentimes, we are given some hard news at first. For example, the reality of our sinfulness before a holy God. But God, Ephesians 2, 4 says, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive with Christ. In 1 Peter 5, what's the bad news? We are going to deal with trials and sufferings. Brothers and sisters are facing them. We will face attacks from the devil, but God. Note the contrast here. Our lives will consist 
of suffering. But the God who gives grace called you to his glory in Christ. Our life will consist of suffering for a little while. But the God of all grace called you to his eternal glory. Suffering and glory for a little while and eternal. Though our sufferings are great, though the devil would wish to sift us like wheat, this is but a light and momentary affliction compared to the glory that is to come. That is our reward. Glory with Christ in the heavenly places. And so verses 6 and 10, they serve as a sort of bookend here in our passage, promising glory for suffering Christians like you and me. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. The one who perseveres in the midst of affliction, trials and suffering will receive the glory of Christ in heaven. And Peter confirms this reward by his use of four verbs. And what is interesting about these verbs is they are virtually synonymous. Restore, confirm, strengthen, establish. They largely overlap in meaning. So what is Peter doing here for us? He is, is making a climactic declaration. He is seeking to cast away all doubts of God's goodness, all doubts of God's faithfulness to suffering Christians. The God who called you, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Are you stumbling this evening? Are you broken? We all are. God will put all things right. We will be mended and restored. Are you weary? Do you feel weak? God will strengthen you, causing you to be firm in humility and faith. Are there waves crashing all around you? God will confirm and secure you. You will not be moved, but you will be found resting on a secure foundation, Jesus Christ, our Lord. But some of us this evening may be asking, how? How does Peter know this will happen? Well, it's because this is the pattern that Christ has established. Peter has mentioned this a few times in his letter. Suffering is the way to glory. Christ's suffering paved the way to glory. Listen to 1 Peter 2.21 and following. To this suffering you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, though he might die to sin and live to righteousness. Later on in 1 Peter 4.13, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory 
is revealed. Christ's life of humiliation and suffering paved the way to glory. Look at our text from the beginning. Christ is the one who humbled himself and lived the life of self-denial, verse 6. Christ is the one who casted his every care on his heavenly Father, verse 7. He is the one who resisted the devil. The Lord Jesus stood firm, verse 9. The Lord is our elder brother who suffered and even conquered the lion by his suffering. Do you remember our Lord's time in the wilderness? The accuser showed up yet again. The devil quoted a particular psalm. This this temptation sticks out to me as we reflect on this passage. It comes from Psalm 91, beginning in verse 11. Listen to what the devil quoted to our Savior. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The adversary tempted Jesus using the scriptures that spoke of Jesus. The devil wanted to convict him of wrongdoing with a passage that spoke of his coming glory. The devil offered him a way to glory without the cross. That was our Lord's temptation. Glory without suffering. But glory without suffering is not the way. The way of Christ is the way of suffering. And curiously enough, the devil stopped at verse 12. And what do we read in Psalm 91, verse 13? You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Our elder brother, who suffered in a state of humiliation, has now become the lion trudder in a state of exaltation. The Lord Jesus Christ fulfills our very passage for us. And those who are united to Christ by faith now also become lion treaders. We are empowered by the Spirit to respond in humility, to be sober-minded, to be alert, to be in constant readiness. The Spirit has given us the armor of God that we might resist the devil. And of course, by faith, we are able to receive our eternal reward. So how do we know that glory is our reward for suffering? Because Christ has paved the way. And where he goes, we will follow. So how else can we finish our time this evening? than by joining the Apostle Peter in worshiping our great God. He finishes the main body of his letter after reflecting on God's faithfulness with verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. There may be spiritual forces that wish to annihilate us, but to God be the dominion. There may be humans that wish to bring harm upon us, but to God be the dominion. Our bodies may grow weak in time, but to God be the dominion. No one and nothing can undo 
the eternal saving purposes of our Lord. And that is good news for us. So may this comfort you the next time you face a trial, the next time you're in a season of suffering. May this comfort you the next time you see a lion at the opening of your tent. Because the victory is yours in the lion treader, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. O oh, great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your Son. You sent him in a loving act of condescension to become the lion treader, to be a redeemer of a sinful and suffering people, to bestow on us a righteousness that could never be ours. O oh, Jesus, we praise you for what you have done in humility and now in your state of exaltation. We thank you for sending forth your spirit so that we could resist the attacks of the accuser. And we thank you, O Spirit, that you do comfort us, that you console us in times of trial and suffering. And you remind us of the hope that we have, the hope of an eternal glory. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to you be dominion forever and ever. Amen.